This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. Uh, I am very excited about today's guest as we are going to dive in deep to metabolic health. And if you've listened to my podcast, you know how much I stress metabolic health or just general health and wellness and how it can prevent so many of our chronic diseases. Unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of doctors who just haven't figured that out yet. Um, but one that has is my guest today, and he just so happens to be a, a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, which is really cool uh, that he's kind of figured all this out. So my guest is Dr. Philip Ovadia, MD, and he recently wrote a book uh, that actually isn't even released yet, but time this podcast comes out, it probably will be, but uh, it's titled Stay Off My Operating Table, A Heart Surgeon's health guide to lose weight, prevent disease, and feel your best every day. And so uh, that's what we're going to discuss today. So Dr. Ovedia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here with you. Yeah, well, let's, let's dive right in. And so in the first chapter, it's titled Stay Off My Operating Table. And in that, you talk about kind of your own personal journey and, you know, kind of how you learned about metabolic health. And so kind of talk about that and, and just how you got here and then, you know, what motivated you to want to write this book? Sure thing, Greg. Um, you know, so my personal and my professional uh, journey have sort of come together at this point to, to get me to where I am and, and get me to uh, writing the uh, book. You know, I was actually always overweight and obese as a child. And that was despite the fact that, you know, my family largely followed the advice of of the time, the U.S. dietary guidelines, and we ate a low-fat diet, low-sugar diet. I have an older brother who is a type 1 diabetic. So, you know, I would say we were probably more careful than most uh, regarding, you know, the foods that we were eating. And I was also very active as a child. I played sports year-round and, you know, rode my bike and walked most places. So, you know, that would, most people would, uh, were led to believe that that is what would keep us healthy. And yet, despite that, um, as I said, I was uh, overweight and obese and went through high school and college and medical school and got more overweight, more obese and more unhealthy. And many times, you know, especially, you know, once I kind of went through medical school and I learned what I thought was the proper way to manage my weight, eat less, move more, count calories, you know, eat a low fat diet. And, you know, many times I would kind of focus on losing weight and I would do those things and I would temporarily lose some weight. Um, But as I'm sure many in your audience have experienced, I would then gain back the weight and more. And ultimately this came to a head about you know, five or six years ago when I realized that I was going to end up on my own operating table. I was morbidly obese at that point. I was pre-diabetic 
And I realized that I was headed down the same path as, you know, the patients that I was operating on every day for their heart disease. And thankfully, you know, I came across some alternative ideas at that point on, you know, why we get obese, why we get unhealthy. Uh, my journey really started with Gary Tobbs and, uh, of course, his, you know, wonderful books, uh, The Case Against Sugar and Why We Get Fat. Uh, I was fortunate to hear him, you know, he was the invest invited guest lecturer at a medical conference that I was attending. And, you know, what he talked about, those concepts of the types of food we eating, we eat being more important than the amount of food we eat. Uh, was very enlightening, and it was really the first time I had heard these concepts, and I immediately started, you know, eliminating sugar from my diet, and then low-carbohydrate diets, ultimately evolving to a carnivore-type diet, and over the past five years, I have now lost 100 pounds, maintained that weight loss, and more importantly, I came to realize that metabolic health was the root cause for not only obesity, but the heart disease that I had you know, spent my career uh, treating and diabetes and many, if not most of all of the, you know, chronic medical conditions that we face. So, you know, I have now kind of refocused my career some. I still continue to work as a cardiac surgeon, but I am now on a mission to help as many people as possible to stay off my operating table by teaching them about metabolic health and how it can help prevent uh, the chronic conditions that are plaguing our society. That's fantastic. Uh, very well said. I'm curious, as you started this lifestyle, were you hesitant at first, especially being a cardiothoracic surgeon, eating all this meat and all this fat? And then my second question to that is, uh, what did your colleagues think and, and what do they think now about you just living this lifestyle and then preaching this message? Yeah, certainly, you know, I, um, you know, I, I went through medical school uh, in the late 1990s and, uh, you know, my training was uh, early 2000s. And so I was certainly only trained that the primary cause of heart disease was cholesterol and specifically saturated fat in the foods that we eat. And I've come to realize, you know, the flaws in that argument. Um, you know, looking back, and even at the time, I always had a little bit of a, you know, sort of uneasiness about the fact that about half of the patients that I was operating on for heart disease did not have elevated cholesterol levels, despite the fact that we, you know, viewed cholesterol as the primary cause of heart disease. As I started to, you know, kind of look back on the science that was behind that, I came to realize the flaws that were in it. And, you know, it is now clear to me that while cholesterol plays a role in the process that ultimately leads to heart disease, it is not the primary cause. And, you know, metabolic health and the inflammation that comes with it and the damage that that does to our blood vessels, uh, that is the primary cause of heart disease. Uh, so the cholesterol is a secondary issue, um, you know, as probably many in your audience are, are familiar with because, you know, you and, and many of the guests you have had on, you know, realize these things, uh, you know, the cholesterol is actually a repair mechanism for the damage to the blood vessels. And so the, the best way to prevent heart disease is not to try and lower the cholesterol level um, with either diet or medications. It's to stop the damage 
to the blood vessels from occurring in the first place. And of course, you know, these ideas are still, you know, a little bit outside the mainstream, uh, especially in the heart disease space with cardiologists and with cardiac surgeons. But, you know, I think there is plenty of evidence to support that concept. Practically, we see it now in, you know, all of the patients that are having success by focusing on their metabolic health, you know, and when I look at myself and, you know, what has happened with all of my blood work and, you know, losing a hundred pounds and and correcting my prediabetes, I am convinced that I am at much lower risk of heart disease, despite the fact that my, you know, LDL cholesterol level might be a little higher than it was uh, you know, on my low fat, uh, you know, standard American diet or or USDA diet. So I, I am quite confident in that, you know, we continue to get more and more evidence of that. Uh, and while it goes against the mainstream, I simply point out that look at where the mainstream advice to this point has gotten us. Exactly. So I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say heart disease, you know, continues to be the number one uh, cause of death in the United States and worldwide. It has been that way unchanged for the past 30 years. And that is despite all the advances we have made, uh, around, you know, the pharmaceutical lowering of cholesterol levels. That is despite the advice that has been given around low fat diets for the past 30 years. And it really is not having a noticeable effect on heart disease. Absolutely. Yeah. It reminds me, you know, that saying that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting, you know, a different outcome, which is, you know, what we're doing with healthcare. So I'm curious, have you been able to convince any of your colleagues of this or do they all think you're crazy? Um, I would say that, you know, there are certainly uh, more people in more physicians in the heart disease space that are coming around to these ideas. Um, there are other, you know, cardiologists that I, that I uh, interact with in the low carb space now, uh, and the metabolic health space. You know, it, it is it is still a minority, certainly, but I think we are making some progress on that front. Very nice. Uh, yeah, have you uh, chatted with uh, Dr. Nadir Ali? Yeah, yeah I've, I've certainly uh, talked with Nadir. Uh, Brett Shear is another, yeah. uh, you know, cardiologist. Uh, Christian Assad. Um, you know, at low carb medical meetings that I now go to, uh, you know, continue to grow uh, in terms of the you know number of physicians that are attending them, the variety of the specialty of the physicians that are attending them. And, I, you know, that gives me some hope uh, that we are making progress in, on this front. But we still have a long way to go, certainly. For sure. Well, that's fantastic. Well, let's get into your book a little bit more. So you talk about the 12 myths that they wanted us to believe. And uh, some of these you've, you may have already highlighted, but um, the first one is that only obese people are metabolically unhealthy. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think this is a real important one because you know the assumption that many people make and quite frankly, many physicians make is that if you are not obese, then you are healthy. And the reality is uh, quite different. Um, When we look at the statistics, uh, we know that 88% of the adults in the United States are not metabolically healthy. Uh, And that comes from, you know, the 2016 NHANES data. 
But when you break that down and you look at people who are obese versus people who are normal and underweight, um, the vast majority of people that are obese are metabolically unhealthy. It's about 90, you know, 92% of people who are obese are metabolically unhealthy. However, not being obese does not, it in no way guarantees that you're metabolically healthy because 40% of the people that are normal or underweight are metabolically unhealthy. So you cannot assume that just because you are not overweight, you are, you are metabolically healthy. And, you know, in medicine, we have that term for, you know, skinny fat or tofi, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. That, you know, that is what this reflects. Uh, we know that there are certain people who, before they get obese, they are going to get metabolically healthy. And I think that's important because if you're not looking at the markers of metabolic health, if you're not, you know, assessing in all of your patients or in yourself whether or not you are metabolically healthy, you're not going to know the answer just from looking at a person. Absolutely. Uh, so these next ones, I'm going to kind of combine two or three of them because uh, they're similar. So you have number two, the food pyramid is good for you. And then number three, the food pyramid is based on good science. And then um, the next one, the people who produce our food want us to be healthy. So I kind of group all those together. So just kind of talk about that a minute. Yeah, I think those all go together very well, you know, and I think most people assume, and again, you know, most physicians believe all of these same myths. So, you know, when I say people, I'm including, you know, both the patients and the physicians. Uh, but people assume that, you know, we got together the smartest scientists in the land and we, you know, poured through all of the scientific evidence to come up with the food pyramid. Uh, and then that, that gets reviewed on a regular basis. And, you know, the food pyramid is, is there to keep us healthy. Uh, the reality is quite different. And, uh, you know, people, people like uh, Nina Teicholz have gone into this in great detail. Uh, but, you know, the original science leading to the food pyramid uh, was, was very weak, actually. The congressional committee uh, that was uh, initially kind of charged with coming up with these food guidelines, uh, with the oversight of the you know USDA to come up with these food guidelines. The senator leading that committee actually, you know, at one point during those hearings, uh, admitted that we did not have adequate science to make recommendations about what people should eat. But he said, we don't have time to wait for the science because the, you know, heart disease epidemic, the obesity epidemic that was exploding in the late 1970s and early 1980s were felt to be too big an emergency to wait for science. Uh, it's a little bit uh, kind of, uh, you know, ironic hearing that today in our current environment, but mm -hmm. that was said by him. And then, you know, every five years, the uh, there's a committee that gets together that's supposed to, you know, review the new science and, and update the food pyramid. And there have been some minor changes made to it, but it largely remains the same. You know, in the most recent uh, update, uh, actually the two most recent updates, the 2015 and the 2020 updates, you know, it was brought up that there should be some consideration for low carbohydrate diets. And the committee in 2015 said we don't have adequate science to comment on low carbohydrate diet. And in 2020, they said the same thing. And, uh, you know, the organization that's led by Nina uh, 
uh, bought them 46 studies on low carbohydrate diets and their effect on health, 46 well done studies that they presented to the committee. And the committee still said, we don't have enough evidence to, be, you know, to uh, talk about low carbohydrate diets in the food car in the food guidelines. So it just kind of gives you an idea of, you know, what the, the, the lack of good science that underlies the food pyramid. And I think a lot of the reason why that is, is because, you know, the members of the committee that are on, the members that are on this committee uh, have very deep ties to the food industry. They're, they're just intertwined at this point. There's a lot of people that go back and forth between being, you know, executives or working for food companies and then ending up on this oversight committee. And, you know, we have to keep in mind that the food industry, quite frankly, is not interested in keeping us healthy. They have no motivation to keep us healthy. The food industry is there only to sell more food. And uh, therefore, the, the food pyramid and that helps to guide the types of food that are being made by the food companies uh, ultimately are not there to keep us healthy. And again, the evidence of that is all around us because we have been eating according to the U.S. dietary guidelines now for 40 plus years and 88% of the adults in this country are not metabolically healthy. For sure. And I, I would take that a step further and say that our healthcare industry does not exist to make us healthy. Um, not just the food <laughs> recommendations. Um, but anyway, I could go down that rabbit hole for a long time. But. Yeah, but I, and I would join you th there as well. You know, what I say about the healthcare industry is it has basically lost its way. It, you know, is no, it is so consumed with trying to treat the diseases mm -hmm. that people have these days that we have lost sight of the fact that we can keep people from having all of these illnesses to start with. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, next you have, um, that low carb diets are bad for your heart. And these are the myths that we're still going through. So, uh, you've talked about this a, a little bit already, but so I'd love to hear your take as a cardiothoracic surgeon of why low carb diets are not bad for your heart. Yeah. And I think, you know, I would also kind of group in, in this discussion, uh, you know, the, the next myth, myth number six, which is high cholesterol causes heart disease. Uh, because again, those are intertwined. Um, basically, in the end, um, we know that uh, when you're constructing a diet, um, you know, the more low carb you make it, the higher fat you're going to make it. And the opposite is true. The lower fat that you make a diet, the higher carb you're going to make it. It just, you, you need one or the other uh, because we can't, you know, we don't eat pure protein and we can't eat pure protein. The concern around low carb diets has always been that if you increase the amount of fat that you're eating, specifically saturated fat, that this is going to lead to heart disease, high cholesterol and heart disease. And there, there are a couple of flaws in that argument. First of all, the relationship between the amount and the types of fat that you eat does not clearly influence cholesterol, your blood cholesterol levels like we think it will. Um, the majority of your blood cholesterol level, it turns out, you know, gets determined by uh, the amount of cholesterol that your body is making. Our bodies are constantly making cholesterol. It serves many important purposes in our body. And, and when you, again, you look at the science, um, it turns out that the influence of the amount of fat and the type of fat that you're eating is not very much on your 
determining your cholesterol level. And then the second part of that, you know, the your cholesterol level, specifically your LDL cholesterol level, which is what we tend to, you know, what most doctors tend to focus on, is not a very good predictor of your incidence of heart disease. There is a weak correlation there, but it is nowhere near as strong as we have been led to believe. So the concern that, you know, when some people start on a low carbohydrate diet and their LDL cholesterol level goes up, that that is going to immediately translate to an increased risk of heart disease, again, is not something that is founded, you know, in the scientific evidence. And, you know, there's still, st there are certainly, you know, it would be great to have more science to definitively answer this question. There are efforts underway to do that, to specifically study people on low carbohydrate diets, people with good metabolic health who have an elevated cholesterol level and whether or not that actually translates to, you know, risk of heart disease. But, you know, I, I think based on the evidence that we do have so far, I am fairly confident in telling my patients that the risk uh, from, you know, a slightly elevated LDL cholesterol level in the face of good metabolic health uh, is probably does not translate to heart disease. And more specifically, you know, if you have improved your metabolic health parameters with a low carbohydrate diet, you've lowered your fasting blood glucose levels and your hemoglobin A1C, you've lowered your triglyceride level, you've raised your HDL cholesterol level. All of these effects that we typically see with metabolically healthy and low carbohydrate diets, then I think that the you know, rise that some people see, and again, not consistently, but some people see in their LDL cholesterol level is probably not a concern. And I've talked about this a little bit before on the show, but, you know, when I tell patients, uh, you know, I, I talk about, you know, everything you just said, and I'll say, you know, I like looking at a cholesterol panel, a standard cholesterol panel, but I look at it differently than most. I look at the triglycerides and the HDL, specifically their ratio. And if their ratio is, you know, one-to-one, -one, which is kind of the goal, which speaks on metabolic health, then it really doesn't matter, you know, what the LDL is and certainly doesn't matter what the overall is because they're metabolically healthy. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I largely agree with that. And, you know, these are many of the issues that I end up dealing with in uh, in the patients that uh, come to me, um, you know, and, and also understand that blood markers um, are only one aspect of predicting risk of heart disease. There are other things that we can look at. There are more advanced blood markers than, you know, your typical, you know, standard cholesterol panel as well. So it's a very, you know, it, it is a very complex uh, issue, whether someone is at risk for heart disease. And I think quite frankly, you know, by only focusing on LDL cholesterol, we are doing a large disservice, uh, to, to our patients. Um, okay. So I'll, I'll keep moving here. And you, you mentioned that medications are the best treatment for medical issues. Um, and then I'll, I'll kind of skip ahead because on number 11, I'll kind of pair it with that, that you say you can't improve metabolic health without medications. And so both of those are about medications. So, so talk about just prescription medications, if you will. Yeah. Again, as we kind of talked about earlier, I think the healthcare system has lost its way and it has become overly focused on treating disease with 
you know, medications. And I would also largely uh, lump in, you know, kind of surgery and interventions in that. Uh, and for the vast majority of the chronic diseases that are plaguing our society, things like heart disease and diabetes, uh, we need to realize that these are primarily related to the foods we are eating. And therefore, the primary solution for them should be changing the foods that we are eating and the other lifestyle issues that contribute to them. And simply, you know, treating something like high blood pressure with medication instead of investigating whether or, fact, whether or not there is poor underlying metabolic health and trying to correct that um, with diet and lifestyle, uh, I think, you know, is doing a large disservice to people. Uh, and, you know, the same goes for type 2 diabetes, heart disease, many of these things, most of these things can be prevented and or, you know, better treated by focusing on diet and lifestyle first. And then if that isn't doing it, some, there is certainly a role for medication. I'm not saying medication should never be used. It's just that it shouldn't be the primary first line treatment for these conditions. For sure. Um, you mentioned a few others, which we've, we've kind of talked about, and I'm going to skip over those just for sake of time, because I want to get to some other stuff here. But, you know, in chapter three, you mentioned, and obviously we've talked about this, that the system is broken and what to do about it. And that could be a whole episode <laughs> in and of itself, but in an, in a nutshell, talk about that and, and how we fix this mess right now that we call healthcare. Yeah. And I think the most important way that we are going to, you know, make an impact on, uh, on the healthcare system is to getting back to focus, you know, returning to the focus on what we eat and our lifestyle issues as the, you know, prevention and treatment of chronic problems. It is clear, we all know that the expense of treating, uh, you know, the expense of healthcare is bankrupting our country. And it's not limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomena that the expense of healthcare is, you know, is uh, bankrupting the world, quite frankly. Uh, and we also are not making improvements. Many people are aware of the statistics that the sort of consistent rise that we had seen in life expectancy has leveled off and, and might even be starting to go down again, uh, you know, in terms of how long we are living. More importantly, I think the quality of life for older people is clearly getting worse. Average 50-year-old in this country is on multiple medications. People are not healthy anymore. People don't even expect to be healthy. They have been told that it is normal to get unhealthy as we get old. You know, we've been told it is normal to be on multiple medications as we get older. Men are being told that it's normal that our testosterone levels decrease as we get older. And all of these things should not be accepted uh, and do not need to be the case. If we return to our focus on you know what we eat getting reasonable amounts of activity getting a good amount of sleep dealing with our stress and you know the other lifestyle issues like that there is no reason that we can't be healthy for the vast majority of our lives and i think that is the fundamental change that we need to start making if we are going to improve if we are going to get ourselves out of the mess we are around healthcare. for sure and i've been saying for a, a while now that I believe that the the number one factor that determines 
COVID outcomes, and uh, sorry to open this door, uh, but is metabolic health. And so just think of the changes we could have made and the lives we could have saved if that message would have been preached from the get-go, you know, when we started this pandemic about metabolic health and then teach people how to do that. And, and you know, here's how you get metabolically healthy. Um, and, and I just think about the number of lives that could have been saved. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've been, you know, largely talking about the same things. And, you know, again, the reality is, is that we, we have that data, probably the, some of the least controversial data around COVID uh, and the data that has been most consistent from the, you know, first reports that were coming out of Italy and China, you know, and, and, and New York during the early waves of COVID was that metabolic health, and it was looked at in a number of ways, whether it was your blood glucose on admission, your comorbidities in terms of diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. However you want to look at that, it has been clear that poor metabolic health has been the number one predictor of bad outcomes when you get COVID and even your likelihood to get COVID. Mm -hmm. And I agree. I think it was largely a missed opportunity uh, that that wasn't talked about more. Uh, and, and still to this day is not talked about, you know, whether or not you think all the other things around COVID, you know, the vaccinations, the, the various treatment, you know, protocols that have been put out there. None of those need to be exclusive of trying to get people healthy, trying to improve people's metabolic health so that they are more resistant, you know, not only to COVID, but quite frankly, future, you know, whatever comes next after COVID as well. For sure. Well, talk about how you measure uh, metabolic health. You know, I, I mentioned the triglyceride to HDL ratio, and, and I, I personally get fasting insulin levels, uh, which I think is a good marker of, of metabolic health. And, you know, you mentioned A1C and, of course, fasting glucose and all that. But you have a whole chapter on that. So what are some ways that you like to assess metabolic health? Yeah, so I think that there are uh, five official measurements, um, you know, that we use for metabolic health. So when I gave the statistic earlier that 88% of the adults in the United States are not metabolically healthy, it was based on five measurements. Those five measurements are your waist circumference. And again, this is something you can measure at home. You just take a tape measure just above the level of your belly button, best to measure it first thing in the morning. And if you were a man, you want that to be under 40 inches. And if you're a woman, you want it to be under 35 inches. The next measurement we look at is your blood pressure. Um, you want your blood pressure to be less than 130 over 85, and that needs to be without the use of medications. If you have been started on blood pressure medication, blood pressure lowering medication, that is an indication that you are not metabolically healthy. And then in terms of blood work for the official measurements, the three we look at are your fasting blood glucose, your HDL cholesterol, and your triglyceride levels, like we've been talking about. You want your fasting blood glucose level to be under 100, again, without the use of medications. You want your HDL cholesterol. You know, again, this is your good cholesterol, so the higher the better. If you're a woman, you want it to be over 50. If you're a man, you want it to be over 40. And you want your triglycerides to be less than 150. So those are the five official metrics, and those are the basics that I recommend everyone needs to check, needs to know. And if you're going to your physician and they are not looking at those five measurements, you need to push them to do it, or you need to find a new physician. 
I agree with you. I think fasting insulin levels are probably, you know, the best thing we can check. Um, it's an easy, cheap test. And I don't know why it's not commonly done. I certainly do it with all my patients. Again, I agree that that's something that we should be looking at, uh, but it's not one of the, you know, kind of official metrics. So the good starting point that I tell people is figure out where you are on those five measurements. If more than three, if three or more of those five are abnormal, you are officially diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. And that puts you at very high risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, many types of cancer, Alzheimer's disease. These have all been you know, associated with metabolic syndrome. If you have one or two of those abnormal, it's a warning sign because we know that you are likely to progress to metabolic syndrome uh, you know, over the next five to 10 years. And again, you know, just to repeat the staggering statistic, only 12% of the adults in the United States have all five measures of those, you know, all five of those measures in the healthy range. That's crazy. Well, okay. So let's keep going. You have the, uh, the seven principles of metabolic health, and I'm just going to run through all these. And then I'll just kind of let you talk about if you want to break it down a little bit, but you talk about uh, reframe health as a system, not a goal. Um, well, let's just stop there. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, you know, the mistake that we make too commonly is we focus on the short-term goals when we're thinking about our health. You know, most people say, I want to lose 20 pounds. And when you do that, you know, one of two things happens. Either you lose the 20 pounds and you're like, great, I did what I needed to do, and then I'm going to go back to my old habits and invariably end up, you know, usually gaining back the weight and more. Or you don't lose the 20 pounds because it's it's hard to lose the 20 pounds, especially when you're not getting great advice. And you get down on yourself and you're like, oh, what's the point to trying? You know, I can't even lose the 20 pounds. Instead, what I like to get my patients to think about, what I think people have more success when they think about, is the overall system of your health. If you say, I want to be metabolically healthy and I'm going to find the habits that support that, I think that is a much, first of all, it's a positive thing instead of a negative thing. You're not restricting yourself just to achieve a goal. Uh, and I think it's just a better long-term thing, you know, because it's not the short term. It's a long-term goal. I want to be metabolically healthy. I want to remain metabolically healthy. And I find people have much better success when they do that. Gotcha. So you're talking, you talk about eat real food, whole food. You mentioned keto, paleo, low carb. So, you know, I, I tell patients, you know, eat food with one ingredient, steak. Yeah eggs, you know, whatever. So talk about that. Yeah. So um, basically, I think this is the most important principle when you're trying to uh, support your metabolic health and eat whole real food. So I frame it as eat the things that grow in the ground and then eat the things that eat the things that grow in the ground. Um, but you're right, you know, simple one ingredient things or, you know, combining those ingredients, you should be able to look at your food and know exactly what you're eating. Um, it really shouldn't have a long ingredient list. And, you know, if it has an ingredient list at all, again, it should just be those simple things combined. This is the food that we evolved on as human beings. And this is the food that our bodies were designed to uh, process and to work on. So the more that we can stick to just eating whole real food, the better our metabolic health is going to be. Now, importantly, in this book, I don't give the Dr. Ovedia 28-day diet plan. 
I don't say there's only one way to be metabolically healthy. You have to eat, you know, this. I go through many popular dietary strategies, literally both vegan and carnivore and lots of things in between like low carb, you know, keto, paleo, Mediterranean, Atkins. I talk about all of these and I point out, you know, what are the metabolically healthy features about each one of them and what are the things that are not metabolically healthy about each one of them. And then I think that people can then, you know, find what works for them. And this is another important concept that it's not one thing that's going to work for everyone. And also for each individual, it may change over time a little bit what you do. Uh, but if your focus is on remaining metabolically healthy, you use those metrics that we talked about as your measuring stick. Um, and then you find what works within your lifestyle and, you know, the other considerations, you know, that are important when we figure out what we're going to eat. So you mentioned at the beginning that you kind of gravitated towards a, more of a carnivore type diet. And so I'm curious as to why you, you kind of went that way and do you just kind of feel better on that or, or kind of talk about that? Yeah. So what I found for me, you know, the carnivore diet, um, fits my lifestyle the best. Um, it is the food that I enjoy eating. Uh, it keeps me metabolically healthy. Um, I have seen great success with it. Uh, and I, I find it easy to maintain, you know, it's easy to shop. It's easy to cook. Uh, it just, uh, is really low stress for me. You know, I, I rarely go to the supermarket in actuality, but when I do go to the supermarket, it's a quick lap around the outside of the supermarket, you know, get get some meat, some seafood, some eggs and some dairy. Uh, you know, in reality, I, I tend to do that more at farmer's markets or going directly to ranchers to get my food. Uh, and then, you know, when I'm ready to eat, it's usually grab something out of the refrigerator or the freezer, throw it in a pan for a few minutes, you know, heat it up, cook it up. And uh, there's usually little waste, very little, you know, preparation there. I don't have to have these complex uh, uh, recipes that I'm trying to follow. Uh, yeah. So it works for me. But like I said, I that doesn't mean that I tell everyone that they need to be carnivore. Sure. I think yeah. you can be metabolically healthy. Uh, as I said, uh, as a vegan, as a carnivore, and many things in between. And when you use these principles that I outline as your guide, uh, you're going to be able to find what works for you. So I asked about, you know, your colleagues and, you know, it's one thing to say, well, you know, I, I kind of eat lower carb, but then it's a whole nother level when you're telling them, yeah, I pretty much eat nothing but meat, you know, no fruits and vegetables. And of course, fruits and vegetables are what's been promoted all these years by the American Heart Association. And so, you know, what, do, what do your fellow colleagues say in the cardiac world when you say, yeah, I pretty much just eat meat? Well, you know, again, ultimately for me personally, when I have those discussions, you know, with my colleagues, I let the results speak for themselves. You know, I can show them, first of all, here I am, I lost a hundred pounds. I've maintained it for many years now. Um, I've gotten the CAC, the heart scan to, you know, show that I have no evidence of heart disease. Uh, and so, you know, on a personal level, I let the results speak for themselves. Uh, you know, on the broader level about, you know, talking to patients and, and things like that, you know, what I point out about the, the fruits and the vegetable issue, for instance, is that, you know, we, we really have lousy nutritional studies. You know, the evidence supporting that is epidemiologic. 
associational stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the physicians, uh, the scientists, you know, in the audience will certainly understand that that is not good quality science and epidemiology is not able to prove anything scientifically. It is only supposed to kind of direct you towards further research. And, and you know, but again, when you look at that, you know, I, I, I challenge them. I say, you know, they always say, well, you know, eating a lot of meat causes heart disease. And I say, okay, show me the studies on that. And the reality is, is that they can't because we don't have studies uh, that show that. The only studies that have associated, you know, meat uh, with bad outcomes in terms of heart disease is when they say meat, um, what they mean, you know, when most people report that they ate meat in an epidemiologic study, that means a hamburger in a, and that is the meat with the bun, with the toppings, oftentimes with the French fries that have been fried in vegetable and seed oil and the soda that's, you know, drank with it. Um, and when you truly isolate out the meat, you can't show any, you know, bad outcomes from that. You can only show bad outcomes in that the people that are eating meat also tend to eat a lot of these other unhealthy things. Well, very good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I've had, had a couple of people, uh, you know, on the show specifically about the carnivore diet, uh, Sean Baker, you're probably familiar yep. with him. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a great way to eat. I mean, it's obviously very restrictive. I'm curious, does, does your family join you in that endeavor? Um, you know, not completely. So, uh, you know, my wife, I would say, is more on the low carb side of things, uh, although, you know, kind of very carnivore ish. Okay. Uh, but, you know, she tends to eat some of the other stuff. And my children, um, you know, who are, are younger, uh, eight and 10 years old, you know, we really aren't, you know, strict with them. Yeah. But, you know, they do see what mommy and daddy eat and they tend to mirror it. You know, when we go out to eat, they oftentimes will ought order their burgers without buns, you know, they are starting, they're getting old enough to start to pay attention to when they eat other things, when they eat a lot of sugar, for instance, that, you know, they don't feel so good. Uh, so that they'll, you know, start uh, kind of limiting themselves. Uh, yeah. And I think that's important, you know, with children. I, I, I think if you are super restrictive with them, that can sometimes have the opposite effects. And instead, you know, just demonstrating good behavior, kind of showing the results of that. Uh, they understand that ultimately. You know, you talk about exercise in there, obviously an important piece in getting metabolically healthy. Uh, what's your advice when it comes to exercise? Yeah, my main advice around exercise to people is really just to move more. Um, I would rather people try and incorporate movement throughout their day than doing the sort of, you know, short, dedicated exercise sessions. Uh, so, you know, if you go to the gym and you do whatever, you know, uh, you know, on the treadmill for an hour a day, and then you sit around the rest of the day not moving, I don't think that's really any net benefit. So I try and encourage people to get more activity throughout the day. Simple concepts like, you know, walking up the stairs instead of using the elevator or the escalator, uh, using a stand-up desk, uh, for instance, when possible at work. Uh, the, you know, parking further away and, you know, kind of walking through the parking lot, uh, you know, just simple things like that. When it comes to exercise, I think that, you know, I know that, or, or I should say, we know that muscle is the most metabolically active tissue. And we also know that the better that you maintain muscle mass as you get older, the better your health outcomes are. 
So I encourage people that your priority when you are doing exercise should be building and maintaining muscle by, you know, resistance exercises. And those can be simple body weight exercises. Those can be, you know, resistance bands are very effective tools, or it can be lifting weights, you know, if you have the equipment and, and the ability to do that. Uh, but it doesn't need to be, you know, I, I, I oftentimes reinforce the people that, you know, simple body weight exercises uh, are very effective and that your main goal with exercise should be building and maintaining muscle mass as we age. For sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I want to ask you about supplements. You talked briefly about it in there, but are there any supplements in particular that you recommend when you're just trying to get people metabolically healthy? Yeah, there, there really aren't. You know, I think a well-constructed diet should have all of the essential nutrients and minerals that you need. Uh, but, you know, I do give uh, some caution around that. We know that the nutritional quality of our food, even, you know, just the simple foods like meats and vegetables, is oftentimes not what it should be. You know, the soil has been depleted of a lot of the essential nutrients uh, that we need. Uh, so ultimately, I hope that people, people should be able to do this without, you know, a lot of supplementation. But I think it is important to be on the lookout for measurable, measurable deficiencies of certain things and then targeting supplementation around that. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes things like vitamin, vitamin D levels are, are, you know, very important to monitor and many people are deficient in it and it's not completely corrected with their diet or while they're working on their diet. You know, for instance, I may put people on vitamin D electrolytes are another important issue that I think, you know, many people uh, need to be paying attention to, you know, having adequate electrolytes, adequate salt, high quality sea salt, uh, you know, within their diet is something I recommend. Magnesium is another common deficiency that we see because the soil, uh, you know, that the vegetables are being grown in or the plants are being grown in that the animals are eating uh, are magnesium deficient these days. So, I think if we can measure deficiencies, if we can tie, you know, kind of symptoms to those deficiencies, then it makes sense to supplement. Sounds great. Yeah, I love it. Well, anything else as we kind of wrap up here? I know we're, we're running out of time, but anything that I skipped over that you feel is important that you want to add? Yeah, I would just say the final principle that I talk about in the book, you know, get a doctor who gets it. Mm. And yeah. I think it's important to find a partner in this journey. You know, your physician should be supporting what you do. Uh, it's important to find physicians who understand the importance of metabolic health and can help you improve it. Uh, if you have a physician who, you know, for instance, like we talked about earlier, you do a low carb diet and, you know, your LDL cholesterol goes up a little bit and they immediately say, oh, you got to stop that diet. It's killing you. Um, you know, that sometimes is, is not the right physician to be working with. So ultimately, I think it's important to find a physician or, you know, other healthcare pr practitioner. Uh, quite frankly, it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a, a physician all the time, uh, but find someone who's going to support you in your journey. Find a partner who understands this and can help you, you know, through it. Yeah, great advice. So great book. Uh, by the time this is released, uh, people should be able to get it on Amazon. And so it's titled uh, Stay Off My Operating Table. Encourage uh, everybody to get out there and, and take a look at it. So what's the best way for people to 
get a hold of you, maybe if they want to work with you or? Yeah. So the, the website that has all the information on my telemedicine practice, and I do d- work directly with people throughout the United States. Uh, the website is ovadiahearthealth.com, O-V-A-D-I-A, hearthealth.com. And then uh, on social media, I'm very active on Twitter at iFixHearts. And I'm also on uh, Instagram at Ovadia underscore heart underscore health. Final, uh, the other way that I work with people is I do have a kind of group coaching uh, society. It's called the Stronger Heart Society. And you can go to strongerhearts.co and find out more about that as well. Perfect. I love all the information. I love the message that you're preaching. I wish more doctors were doing it. And especially in your field, uh, just as a cardiothoracic surgeon, I mean, just you carry a lot of weight. And so to be, you know, preaching that message is just uh, fantastic. You know, nobody listens to me. I'm just a peon family practice doctor, but somebody, somebody like yourself, they, they're oh, a cardiothoracic surgeon. They, they take, uh, you know, they take listen. So I appreciate the message you're, you know, you're getting out there. Uh, I always end my podcast by uh, asking my guests if they could give us one health tip that would make us healthier today. What would you say? I would say my number one tip is eat whole real food. That's fantastic. Summed it up perfectly. Yeah. Uh, well, very good. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really enjoyed it and uh, appreciate everyone listening. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Fit RX. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com. Dot com.